0: All right folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Today we have a special guest. We welcome David Stein. He's the host of the terrific podcast Money for the Rest of Us and author of the book of the same name. He's here to educate us more about money, how it works and how to invest and how to live without worrying about money, which is a great topic to to uh, to know about. So, uh David is here to talk to us about uh, closed end funds as well as other fun stuff about the investing in stock market, so David, thank you very much for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to come talk to us and we're very excited to learn more about you and all the great stuff you can share
2: with us yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me
0: you're welcome so I guess uh as I mentioned in the, in a little intro there let 's talk about closed end funds i guess for those investors out there that are not familiar with that term, can you kind of help educate us a little bit about what those are? Sure, sure. So a a closed-end fund was the original
2: mutual fund. So it's it's a commingled investment vehicle where you have shareholders, you have a professional money management team that is selecting the underlying stocks. It could be bonds, could be equity REITs. But what's unique about closed-end funds that differs from an open-end mutual fund or an ETF is – an open-end mutual fund, for example, is what we're most familiar with in a 401k plan. It trades at the end of the day. So the the fund sponsor figure out who wants to buy shares, who's, who wants to sell shares. They net it out. They figure out the price of all their underlying assets. And then you exit or enter that fund. The market price equals the net asset value, which is the total assets divided by the share prices. Closed-end funds work differently. They trade on an exchange just like an ETF does, but there isn't a mechanism to make sure that the value of the assets, the net asset value per share, equals the, the market price. And so, there's some advantages to that because then the the fund sponsor has this set pool of capital they can invest in maybe some more illiquid securities, they can use leverage, but the the challenge or or the opportunity for us as individual investors is that we can buy these funds at discounts to their net asset value. So you you could buy a bond fund that's selling at a, a 15% discount to net asset value. And and closed end funds, there are a they're a smaller market. So what I like about them is, is they're not a market that hedge funds can play in. You don't see a bunch of institutional investors buying them because they just can't get the liquidity. So most owners of closing funds are individual investors, which means, and, and one of the things that I'm always asking about, and in my book, I, I talk about this, is to ask who's on the other side of the trade. Because investing is, it, it's, it's a competitive game, and we want to know who's selling us a particular investment. Just like when we buy a house, who's selling us a house, or who's selling... As a car, What do they know that we don't? And with most investments, typically, if hedge funds or, or bots or institutions are involved, they, they know more than us as individual investors. But with closed-end funds, it's other individual investors. And they, they tend to panic in, in a market environment like today. And so they, they sell these funds. They're not sure necessarily what they're owning. And so then you see these discounts widen. And then that becomes more of an opportunity for us.
1: That's that's really cool. So I guess you know mutual fund space, ETF space. I think of the like the big names like Peter Lynch and his mutual fund from the '90s that had crazy returns. Um, today it's like Kathy Wood and the ARC Fund. Are those closed end funds? Are those open end funds? What are the difference or similarities between? those more popular funds and the ones you're talking about?
2: So, so the Peter Lynch fund, the Fidelity, those are open-end mutual funds. ARK is an exchange-traded fund, and, and I should probably extend my analogy to ch- exchange-traded funds. So they exchange-traded funds are like closed-end funds in that they trade on an exchange, and you can see the price disconnect from the underlying net asset value. But with closed-end funds, or I'm sorry, with ETFs, you have what are known as authorized participants. Basically, institutional investors that are always looking at the price of the ETF compared to the net asset value, which gets published every 15 minutes when the market's open. And then they can buy and sell the underlying securities or what's known as a reference basket, as well as the underlying shares. They can short them. And so all that arbitrage allows... ETFs basically to stay in line, the price to stay in line with the net asset value, and so Kathy Woods Ark Innovation ETF, a I think it's ARKK, that's an ETF. Now it's it's distinct because it's an actively managed ETF, whereas most ETFs are are passively managed. They're seeking to track a specific benchmark, but Ark is is heavily active, very technology focused certainly down 60% year-to-date, but its price will stay close to its net asset value, wherewith a a closed-end fund won't. And and, I mean, some of the big sponsors in closed-end funds are are BlackRock, Nuveen. I mean, there are are a number uh, of big-time sponsors. And and one of the other differentiators with the closed-end funds is they tend to be leveraged. So they're borrowing money to leverage up the underlying assets to magnify the returns. So they tend to often be more income oriented. So you'll see distribution yields of six, seven, eight percent. And that's where they can be attractive. So we can pick up a yield at six percent, seven percent in an asset class that, you know, it's selling at a, a discount to its underlying value of, of
1: 15%. Is it as simple as finding those close end funds that are trading at a discount? And buying them and selling them when they are fully valued. What kind of um, a strategy have you found tends to work well when talking about these kinds of investments?
2: Well, what typically, what we're we're trying to find is a close in fund whose discount is greater than average. And so if you go to a, a website like CEF Connect, you can screen, it's free, you can screen based on the biggest discount and they calculate what's known as a z-score and it's basically a statistical measure and morningstar reports the same thing basically how big is that discount relative to its average and so when i'm investing in closed-end funds i'm typically looking for a z-score of negative three or less in other words so it's negative four or negative well you probably don't get more than negative four but generally uh, it, it's more negative than negative three. And that's typically shows that the discount is greater than average. So that's an opportunity. And then the other thing to consider is, it's just to recognize is, is their dividend sustainable? So if they're, they have a six or seven, 8% yield, you know, that dividend has to be funded somewhere, either out of the income at of, of gains. And so it's just, you know, just like if you're going to analyze a a, st- a company to invest in a stock, it, there is some due diligence required on on closed end funds just to understand whether you know whether that income is sustainable or that dividend is sustainable.
0: When it comes to financial advice, you gotta trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Nerd wallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. That's monarchmone dot beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. Kind of uh, to help educate people and I guess myself too with close-end funds. Uh, do you have the same kinds of choices as of, of baskets that you could choose from? Or is it, is it a smaller asset class and there's less? choices than you would have with with ETFs. So if you're looking to invest in uh, you know just technology versus commodities versus maybe real estate, do you have different closed-end funds that focus on those kinds of areas or are they more a broad range of like, you know, this the Nasdaq and the S&P and the Dow kind of idea?
2: No, they they they're all different types of asset classes. They about 60% are more fixed income. Because just because they're they focused on the distribution yield, but there's, there's equity. I mean, there's, there's value. There's growth. There's technology. There are their debt funds. There's, there's even in one of the holdings that I own is the bearings, uh, uh, corporate investors fund, the tickers MCI. They basically do, basically do pr- private market lending. So they're, they're lenders to private companies. And, you know, that's, that's an example of a fund that, available within closed-end funds in that you know, this is private debt, and so it's not necessarily valued every day. It's not, ter- it's not illiquid, but this is a way that individual investors, we can get access to a private investment and that isn't necessarily available, but, but within a public market category. So when we don't want it anymore, then we can sell it. So it's sort of access to illic- illiquid investments in a, a more liquid way.
1: Kind of along those lines, as venture do they have venture capital and private equity as well?
2: I am sure there are. They're, they're, they tend the ones that are in sort of private equity type companies because they do exist. They tend to have much wider discounts because it's so difficult to value those companies with something like private debt, like M, this this particular closing from the Bearings corporate investors fund they they strike their net asset value quarterly so they're able to at least value the debt quarterly where and, and that's the other thing with these these closed-end funds if they're holding private assets you want to dig into the financial or the the 10k or the just or the not the 10k but the annual report the semi-annual report the perspectives just to understand what what is their valuation policy like how are they valuing the assets in order to come up with the net asset value
1: What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. Okay, yeah, I could see how that can be really helpful. So, like if if um I was telling somebody to go research an ETF, I know there's websites like etf.com where people can go and there's almost like a database of I don't know if it's every ETF, but it seems like any of the ETFs that you would think of seem to be on that website. Is there anything, I know you mentioned the website earlier, but is there anything like that for close end funds? Is it just a matter of, I'm going to Google this fund and kind of have to do my own independent research uh, based on what they're disclosing? Like what's the research process behind that?
2: So the, the CEF com is, is the, the main one that I use that, Provide some profile, allows you to screen. Morningstar covers closed-end funds, so you, I mean, they, you can get the returns and some basic information. You no, know, typically after if I look at Morningstar, CF Connect, then, then I'll go to the, the sponsor's website and get the fact sheet. I'll look at the underlying documents, and, and that's sort of the process. There, we do have on our website a free investment guide on how to research closed-end funds and explain more about them. And that that could. Potentially a, a helpful resource to listeners.
1: Cool. What's the website?
2: Uh, well, it's at dot slash closed end funds. So, closed hyphen n hyphen funds. And I'll, I'll send you the link. You can put it in the show notes. So that that that's kind of a guide we wrote a couple years ago. That's that's helpful.
0: So a question that kind of springs to my mind is what kind of investment vehicle would be best to invest with these funds, like versus a, a traditional, a Roth or a brokerage account? Where, where would be the best place to put those or does it matter?
2: Well, the, because they have higher distributions, you know, sometimes in, in a tax deferred vehicle, an IRA, a Roth IRA, can be helpful but the reality is as as one's wealth grows they can't put all other assets in in uh, tax-deferred vehicles so i i have exposure to closed-end funds in both my taxable accounts as well as my tax-deferred accounts
1: okay yeah i think that's helpful to kind of think of it's like if there's a focus on distributions kind of treat it like you would any investment that generates higher income right so that's Definitely a fascinating option and something I know doesn't get a lot of press in the investing world. And so we appreciate you breaking down that that um kind of an investment option for people. I know you had, this is going to like completely shift gears here, but I know you had a interesting podcast episode talking about commodities and how, you know, just to give like a little bit of background commodities, if you think of oil um, coal gold any any of the basing building blocks of the economy, really the price of those have been doing very poorly in the last couple decades, and so I know there's been a lot of talk out there about how maybe you know the economy has moved past commodities and and you know it's all a technology type company uh, economy now. What are your thoughts on commodities? And are, have you seen? Uh, break us, give us like a breakdown of, of what you covered in that episode, and and kind of what what you've been observing in the world lately around commodities.
2: Sure. So we have been in a commodities bear market, uh, really from 2011. So coming out of the great recession we had you know the peak in 2008 and then commodities sold off and then they really peaked again in 2011 and then really from 2011 through kind of 2020 that may 2020 would really i think you'd call it the bottom because if you recall in may 2020 the price of oil went negative there was a lot of press regarding that and It wasn't oil itself, it was oil futures, and we'll get to that because it's important to recognize that as investors, we cannot go buy a barrel of oil. And so we, as individuals, and even institutions, unless you're buying a ship of oil, you're investing in commodity futures, which is very different than investing directly in a commodity. If you go out and buy gold, you can buy a gold coin. But for most commodities, we can't access that. And so... When we think about commodities, we've had a boom in commodities over the past several years. And much of that is certainly the Russians, Russia invasion of Ukraine ha- has been part of that because a big part of the supply now has sanctions and that's caused some issues. But another issue within commodities is when we went into this bear market, you know, oil companies just didn't invest as much. Their shareholders demanded that they they pay higher dividends and that they be more disciplined in their investing in oil. And as a result, we had really some under-investing in oil for about a six to seven year period. And then as we came out of the pandemic and as there were supply constraints and we had this under-investing in a lot of different commodities, that shot the price of commodities up. And and so then the big question is, are we in a new bull market for commodities, or is this just a temporary thing? And it's, it's an incredibly difficult question to answer because unlike 20 years ago, when you can look at these very long cycles, we now have this energy transition going on. The electrification uh, of autos. And so at some point, you'll get more and more EVs online that obviously don't use oil. They'll use other ways to generate electricity. So, you know, in that episode, we kind of went back and forth and looked at both sides. Is there a new commodities boom because of the underinvestment, or is this a temporary thing? And because of the energy transition, you'll see, and because China's economy is slowing. And they were a big consumer of commodities in the prior bull market, and their economy is transitioning. And so you have all these pieces going on. At the same time, the hardest thing about commodities, when you think about commodity futures, when you buy an ETF, such as the Deutsche Bank Commodity Tracking ETF, or some other commodity ETF, let's say USO, just on oil, they're buying a commodity futures, and a commodity future is a promise to take delivery of a specific commodity in the future. Well, those, those prices of those futures are based on the consensus of what investors believe the price of that commodity will be 30 days from now, 60 days from now. And so with a commodity future, the only way to make money, if you're investing in an ETF that's investing in commodity futures or you're doing it directly, is the commodity price has to do better than what everybody already expects. It has to beat the consensus priced into those contracts, and that's why, where you can you can see somebody investing in oil, and as they roll over that contract, it loses money every month because the future price was too optimistic. And then it's called what's known as negative roll yield, and I, we have a, a an essay on on our website about how that works. But basically, you can have. This investment in the commodity and, and lose money unless we get a period like we just had the past two years, where the commodity prices spiked way more than every, anybody thought, and that's why commodities are up thirty five percent year to date. So it isn't just that they went up; they went up more than what everybody expected, as priced in the futures contracts.
1: Almost like whoever's selling these futures are the only ones who are making money off this. It doesn't seem to help the companies. Doesn't seem to help commodity traders. I mean, just just to be like completely simple oversimplify something that it, it seems like whoever's selling these contracts is making a killing. This episode is brought to you by Shopify, whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing. However, you cha-ching from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the, we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow sign up for a one dollar per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer all lowercase that's shopify.com slash special
0: offer at evernorth health services we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best it's possible pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line it's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI, it's possible because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com
2: slash wonder. Well, we, we, we could sell a contracts. I mean, it, the commodity markets a zero-sum game. So if you're, if you're going long a commodity, there, it's not like a Vanguard selling it to you. It's it's somebody on the other side of the trade that believes believes the commodity will fall in price, or they're just they want to take the opposite and just take the role, they'll just short the commodity every month and then they'll capture that negative roll yield and it end up being a positive return. And so, yeah, it and then you I mean you have oil producers that are hedging. I mean there are people there are uses for commodities to hedge your production cost or something like that. But much of it I agree with you Andrew it's speculative but it's people speculating on both sides of the trade and which is why commodities is an incredibly difficult way to invest because it's a zero sum game you have to be smarter than the consensus to think things are going to do and if your view is we're in a commodities bull market and the consensus is wrong we're going to continue to the prices are going to go up even more than people expect then then you go long but you mentioned, you know, earlier, uh, gas prices, and you know, gas prices have fallen some. So commodities are off fifteen percent in the last month. So if an investor decided I am going to go long commodities, invest in DBC, they're down fifteen percent already, and it's only been a month. So they can be very volatile.
1: So you know, obviously, we can get into all of the angles of you know whether. What, what's going to happen in the future with commodities? But just let's just like sidestep that and let's just assume that somebody believes that we do have a commodity super cycle ahead, that whatever is happening now is something that seems like it would persist. It sounds like you're not going to recommend buying and holding these contracts. Where would you think an investor should start to look if they're wanting to position their portfolio for some sort of commodities bull market?
2: The, the way that that I have invested in the past that we did when I was an institutional investor is is the Deutsche Bank commodity tracking ETF. So DBC is is the ETF. It what what's unique about that ETF? It, it try it doesn't necessarily just buy the front month contract. So the one you know with the one that's thirty days out, it can vary which contract it buys in order to try to minimize this drag or this negative roll yield. It I, I don't own commodity futures right now and I wish I had bought them back in May, 2020, but we're in the midst of the pandemic. And again, so I'm looking at this futures curves and I could see, all right, the front month contract is negative, but we're assuming, I don't know, I think it was like $20 a barrel for oil for the next month. So then you're saying, okay, we oil go up 20 bucks in a month. Like, I don't know. And that's the challenge with commodities: is that I don't typically like to, in, to to invest in a way that I have to do better than what the consensus already thinks. And with a zero sum game, that's exactly what you're doing. And that's that's why commodities are uh, a speculation, something I, I discuss I've discussed on, on my show as well as the book. You know, what's the difference between an investment, a speculation, and a gamble? The speculation is a commodities where there's disagreement on whether, what the price should be. So you have people shorting the commodity, people going long. Somebody's going to win, not everybody. With an investment, it has a positive expected return, it has cash flow, it has something, some income. And so your returns expected to be positive. And then a gamble is something has a negative expected return. And so as, an investor, I prefer investments versus speculations, although I'll have some. I have some gold, have some Bitcoin, et cetera. But most, the workhorse of our portfolio should be investments with positive expected returns.
1: So what kind of a allocation are you talking about when you mentioned the, the Deutsche, um, commodity basket? Just ballpark kind of.
2: Like how is it? In- How is it invested or how, like, a typical investment from an investor perspective? Yeah,
1: like the lather.
2: Oh, well, I mean, generally, speculations should be kept less than 10% of your portfolio. Like, I I, I have seen, and that's the problem with speculations, people just get so excited and they're so confident they're going to be right without really understanding it. I I have a, a family friend that basically lost their farm betting on commodities. And, and I, and I went, it, it, it was so frustrating because he showed me this fund. It was a private fund investing in commodities. He was so, he was very excited about it. And and I noticed, well, they closed that one fund and then they started a new one. So there was like a break in, in their track record. And I, I pointed out to him and as I did more research because they lost all the money. So here's a private commodity fund that had to shut down and then started a new one. And the guy still invested and lost his shirt and lost their farm. And so keep it less than 10% of of your allocation. Like in the case, you know, I own, I have about three to 4% of my net worth in gold, gold coins. I mean, they're hedges, they're protection, but they're zero sum games. They'll only go up if people are willing to pay more. There's no cash flow associated with it.
0: Yeah, so how do, how does uh, how does the commodity prices affect investments that we could make? So for example, uh, I noticed the other day that the price of copper has dropped, <laughs> you know, like oil did in 2020, and lithium has kind of gone the the other way. And so when you think about kind of the EV coming revolution with cars, how do you know, it's it's hard to look at some of those companies and try to figure out whether you think a company like Albemarle is going to be a winner in the long run versus a company that's mining copper and both are important to electric vehicles, but it's kind of hard to, to figure that out. That's what I struggle with.
2: well it is, which is why I don't purchase individual stocks because (laughs) I spent 15 years researching hedge fund managers and long only stock managers And capable came away disillusioned in the sense that here's the smartest investors in the world. Most of the time they're wrong or they might be right about something, but then something complete surprise happens. And so, you know, my approach to investing is how do I invest in a way that I don't have to know what's going to happen? And, but even though, and everybody else still thinks they know what's going to happen. And that's what gives you opportunities like within closed end funds or I mean, we st- at the end of the day, we have to make an investment. And so, I mean, there are areas in the market that can become more attractive that get cheaper. And then, but I've always been an asset allocator focused on baskets of securities versus individual securities, you know, sort of ones you Tuesday, unless, you know, it's something credit, incredibly simple, like a, a, an I series I savings bonds or something like that.
1: Can you give us just a taste of how you make those allocation decisions? Like what is it over, let's say, a five-year period that makes you say, I'm going to allocate more here or I'm going to allocate more there? Can you give us an example?
2: Yeah, so and I, this is what we did as institutional investors. It's what I do on my website. It's what I do in my personal investing is come up with expected returns for different asset types. So in in the building blocks of that is – What's its cash flow yield it could be dividend yield, it's you know bond yield if it's preferred stock, it's dividend yield so i I want to look at what that cash flow is. We want to come up with an estimate of how fast would that that cash flow grow over time. You now if it's a stock or a, a let's u s stock market for example, we can look at the dividend yield it's one and a half percent right now. If we assume that earnings grow over six percent. That's the second element of it. And then the third thing that drives returns is what are investors willing to pay for that cash flow stream today versus five years from now? And so that we're looking at price to earnings ratios for you know different markets. And so I, that's, that's the approach I use for all different asset classes. And then look at and decide, okay, this area is more attractive. I want to add more there. But I'm also cognizant of the risk and the risk that, that we use in our approach is maximum drawdown. So as an institutional investor, we focused on volatility, but the reality is, you know, volatility is not something that is intuitive to investors and we don't care about upside volatility. We, you know, if it goes up more than everybody expects, that's great. So I focus more on maximum drawdown. How much could we lose? Stocks historically have lost. Worst-case scenario is 60%. So I want to scale my allocation to stocks, assuming they could lose 60%. And and not that 60% loss is bad. If you're a young investor without much money, it's fine. You just ride it through. But if you're nearing retirement, then it it could impact your lifestyle. And so the idea is to scale your investments based on not only the downside risk, but the impact of that risk on your lifestyle. And then I'm just diversified on, you know, dozens of different types of investments and in asset classes, both public and private. But I'm generally more a risk-averse conservative type investor because I am you know older than, than many. So I, I'm not a, a young pup anymore. So the reality is I don't need to take risk because I'm financially independent. So in that case, like I'm going to be a more conservative investor, but it's still going to be diversified. And and still take advantage of opportunities as they arise.
1: Yeah, I do like that really big picture approach and appreciate you sharing your wisdom with us. A lot of good stuff there, David, and we really appreciate your time in you joining us. You have a great podcast called Money for the Rest of Us. Um, Just even scrolling through the episode list, you can see a wide variety of topics. And I think that has um an attractiveness all on its own just based off of that. So you have your podcast. Where else can people go to find out more about you and what you're doing online?
2: The Our main website's at moneyfortherestofus.com. So I'm there. I, I you know, occasionally dip into Twitter, at J.D. Stein. But uh, most of our free investment guides, such as enclosed In Funds, the one I mentioned on negative roll yield, or investing in commodities, you can find that at money for the rest of and the menu item is guides.
0: Cool. Awesome. Well, again, David, we really, really do appreciate you taking the time to come join us today and helping educate us on all the great topics that we discussed today. So without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety emphasis on the safety. Have a great week. We'll talk to you all next week.
1: We hope you enjoyed this content. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.
2: Okay, round 2. Name something that's not boring.
0: Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire.
2: Huh? Ah. Oh.